should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender or whatever love is love shout it out to the world the michelle meow show your a through z covering the lgbt lmnop and everyone in between show and now here's your host michelle meow Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, this hump day, this very last day of August. I apologize. I have, I've just been gone this this year. I've not been consistently in the radio studio and I have to apologize. I'm lucky that I'm able to even keep up with the television show. Although the month of pride in San Francisco did keep me away. Uh, 2016, it's not even over yet and I have so much to say. It's just been the year of loss. Personally, for me, uh, I just got back from a funeral, so that would be the reason why I could not get it together <laughs> to produce a, uh, a couple of new shows for you yesterday and also Monday. And it's also been the year of challenges. And then on top of that, you add everything else that's happening, the world tragedies, the election here in the United States, Colin Kaepernick's right to sit down during the national anthem and all of these racist comments going back and forth, you just you just start to feel so, so beaten down and, and so depressed. So I am so grateful that I have you that's tuning in and listening to good people who are doing good things because I think that, that the, the positive of human interaction is what we need to lean on in order to move forward. That's the key thing. Let's just keep moving forward. Again, happy hump day Wednesday. Today we've got a great show for you. We've got uh, an author with us who's our special guest, our main guest today. And in the second half of the show, we have someone who identifies as the national anthem expert or the Star Spangled Banner um, expert. And so we'll talk to him about his thoughts regarding Colin Kaepernick. And, you know, all these comments going back and forth, I, I just had this, like, theory that most Americans who have an opinion about it might not even know the history <laughs> of the national anthem and also uh, may not even know why we have it to begin with. So it'd be interesting to talk to him. But let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. My next guest is the author of her own memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. And uh, the memoir has gained international notoriety, also uh, well-known in the LGBTQ community as it touches on personal experiences, not just of coming out or coming of age, but also uh, immigration, also being someone of color. And, you know, here on the program, that is what we're all about, learning from each other. So let's welcome Daisy Hernandez to the program. Daisy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. 
Uh, so am I. I have to, you know, I'm, I'm sad that I did not get a chance to thoroughly read the book before we got a chance to speak. But I think, you know, uh, asking questions as if I were the audience yeah. is a good thing. Let's start by getting to know you. Tell us, where did you, where were you born? Where, where, uh, where did you grow up? Yeah, a lot of people when they first meet me are like, where are you from? And I tell them, (laughs) I'm from Jersey. And then they say, no, where are you really from? Still from Jersey. (laughs) And grew up in in a home where my dad is from Cuba, my mother's from Colombia, and we grew up in a small working class community just outside of New York City, so that little corner of northern New Jersey, and... um, which has now, you know, when we arrived there, we were, we were the second Latina family um, on our block. And now, of course, if you go there, the town is 99% <laughs> Latina. It has really, really changed since I was a child. Wow, you know, that's it's, uh, it's very interesting, very similar to my childhood. I also did grow up in an mm-hmm. immigrant family, and that's that's what I mean is that when you're not white, <laughs> lots of people always ask you, where are you from? And and that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what I meant. So let's talk about your childhood before we get to, uh, you know, I guess adolescent teenage years and, and then your adult life and kind of why you thought it was important to write this memoir. What was it like to grow up in, in, a, in a small town in which you were the second Latina family, Latino family uh, on your block? Was it easy? It had a lot of challenges. I think that some of the challenges are challenges that a lot of people face in childhood where they know that things that are happening are perhaps unjust, but you don't have the language yet because you're a child. So... Um, you know, I remember, um, you know, people at, um, on the bus and at the, um, the fabric store, because my mother's a, a, um, does sewing, and, and these uh, white folks, you know, saying in English to her, why don't you know English, and why don't you speak English, et cetera. And, of course, being the child who did, who was learning English in school, I understood what they meant. Um, so I knew what they were doing was wrong, but I couldn't quite you know, I didn't. I was too young to have the language to articulate institutional practices <laughs> and all those other things that we that I do not have the language for. And a lot of that is what motivated me in terms of wanting to write the memoir is because you know that growing up process is one of developing that language, right, and beginning to make those connections between experiences that felt felt very private and felt very singular to my own family, and then of course coming into political consciousness. Um, during college years, realizing, oh, we're part of a much larger story. And having had some ideas that we were part of a larger story, because we, as I was growing up, especially in those early childhood years, you know, my mother, of course, was connecting with other immigrant women in the community um, little by little. And so I knew we were all experiencing something somewhat together, um, but didn't have the language yet for it. Mm. And what about, you know, just um, either acting Latina or acting white? I mean, was that uh, was that something that you experienced growing up? Uh, y- your parents going back and forth and wanting you to to be really good at who, you know, where you came from or where your family came from, but also very good at, uh, at uh, acclimating and assimilating to Western culture. Yeah, there were a lot of mixed messages. Um, my parents themselves are not um, 
flag waving Latinos, <laughs> Latinas. <laughs> so my, my, my dad and my mom, like really, like, you know, both of them have been in this country now over 40 years. I think my dad has been here close to 50 years. Um, and, and neither of them ever, they, they did not have pride of, of their, of their own countries and of their culture. They, they both grew up, um, in, in poverty. My dad in a more rural area of Cuba, my mother, both rural area and city, but pretty poor. And for them, you know, coming to the U.S. was um, was absolutely, you know, about, um, you know, you know, having class mobility um, that they wouldn't have been able to have in their own countries. But I think in order to do that, for whatever reasons, like both of them really, um, to, you know, began to associate their country and their culture with. Just with poverty, with a lot of negativity, it was a very negative experience. Um, so ironically, they did not assimilate, however, right? Like mm-hmm. to this day, all of our conversations are all in Spanish. They now, I mean, they've lived in only Spanish-speaking neighborhoods. I mean, so, so it's interesting because um, it's, you know, one thing is what your parents say, and another thing is what your parents do. Right. So what they've actually done is basically, um, you know, taken the village from Latin America and, like, transposed it over, you know, onto U.S. land, essentially, right? So they've created this really, um, you know, great community for themselves. Um, and But their message for me was definitely that I would, you know, again, mixed messages that I would, yeah. you know, definitely go white, you know, like the yeah. Italians that I was growing up around, um, but not too white, you know. And I remember <laughs> my dad when I was in, I was in, I might have been in college, actually, and he said, he said to me that his plan was basically to build an extension to the house that we were living in so that, like, when I married, I could live in that house with mm. my husband. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so I think he had this idea that I would stay, you know, within this, like, you know, diasporic village that he was now a part of. Um, I don't think either of them anticipated that I would um, ever leave New Jersey or ever leave the neighborhood mm-hmm. or have something too different. But at the same time, they wanted me to have the financial stability that they did not have. And on the yeah. flip side, I was also raised by a lot of aunties, my mother's sisters, three of them. Let's... And all those three sisters yeah. came with a lot of pride. So they had some very fixed ideas about how I should be, especially a good girl, especially a good Colombian girl, you know, very gendered. Um, I, that was, messages. that was like my next question, you know, in, in mm-hmm. terms of, of gender roles and uh, how focused they were on that. So what does it mean to be a good, you know, little Colombian girl? What were their standards? Yeah. One of the chapters in the memoir, I focus on my relationship with one of my aunties who, you know, her, her way of controlling my behavior, um, was by making references, derogatory references to indigenous women. So if I, you know, if I spoke back to her or if I was anything except quiet, like a little doll in the corner, (laughs) if I was anything except a little white doll in the corner, uh, she would come out with, you know, I gained ya que eres, you know, and, 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 you know, put that into a derogatory um, connotation, and I, you know, of course, growing up, you know, there, I could talk, I could talk to you now about like you know, indigenous uh, identification and the racism in Latin America and the hierarchy. But when you're growing up, you're just like, uh, what are you talking? Why are you talking about Native Americans right now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, your reference points are so different from what the immigrant women in your family are bringing to you, right? Yeah. 
So, um, so for her, one of the one of the main ways to control it was actually like that linking up of like the race experience with gender. Um, and she saw, you know, she very much wanted me to behave in the, um, you know, what I didn't understand at the time, but was the ideal Spaniard, you know, from Spain, um, tracing roots back there. That she wanted me to behave in that way, and so it meant being very polite. If anyone calls you, si señora, you know, a la orden, a la orden, you know, it was sort of all these um, more formal, you know, references in Spanish to to authority and to the hierarchy within the family as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and their ideas, and you mentioned it, it's so common with a lot of families in which the parents uh, already put in your mind, your brain before you even uh, are, you know, considering your sexuality or experiencing, Mm -hmm. right, that that part of you that they have this ideal partner or marriage or, you know, person Mm -hmm. that you're going to marry. Did that come up at all for, you know, for you? Did you experience that? And, And if so... What? Who was that ideal husband that you would have? Oh yes, uh, it, it was definitely communicated both through the way the women in my family talked about other women in the community, um, and also the telenovelas or the Spanish language soap operas that we watched religiously every single night as a family. <laughs> Um, it was always very clear that the ideal partner was definitely going to be male, um, uh, cis male, and was going to be very light-skinned and um, and wealthy. And and my family was definitely, you know, I, I don't know because I haven't, wasn't, haven't been in this position, but definitely was communicated that it would probably be, wouldn't, would be forgiven if they didn't speak Spanish, if they had all those other <laughs> categories checked off. Um, <laughs> it would be acceptable to, to them. And, um, you know, but at the same time, they were inadvertently, perhaps, like, also raising me with these very romantic notions of love because I was watching these, like, Spanish-language telenovelas, you know, where it's like, <laughs> all that really matters is that you love each other, yeah. <laughs> and that transcends all boundaries of class and race. I mean, never transcended race, but, like, when you're young, you just kind of make the connection <laughs> like that. Right. So um, right. I ended up, you know, I myself am very, you know, I, I did not have a lot of challenges that I think other queer folks have in the sense that, um you know, present as, you know, I don't, ident- I, I didn't identify as femme, but I identify, but I get, I think, classified that way. And so, so they didn't, so we didn't have challenges within my family about how I was presenting gender. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, my own um, sexual orientation until I was in college, like a, an older teenager. So mm. by that time I had some, I had some independence. I lived at home until I was, 27, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of freedom within my home, so, so it was a little bit of a different experience, I think, because it was, um, I think because of the class issues and the immigration issues and then my particular family dynamics. Well, I want to get into that. I want to get to the, the coming out part. I'm sure our listeners want to as well in, in getting to know you <laughs> as, a, as a queer woman or an LGBTQ identified uh, woman. So we're going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, we'll continue with Daisy Hernandez, so don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Wednesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our special guest on the phone is Daisy Hernandez, and we're talking about her memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Daisy, just, uh, just very quickly, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Tell us what the title means to you. Yeah, it, it it's actually the, literally the practice of putting a cup of water under your bed, um, uh, a practice that when you're having a hard time sleeping, the idea, there's sort of different reasons around it, but my mother and the women in my family did that to help us with our sleep, and it had been recommended to them by um, women who were curanderas or had did healing work in the community. And the, the idea being that the, I've read different things about it over time, the idea being that the spirits that are coming to bother you at night would be satiated by the water uh, and not bother you anymore. When I was young, I thought that the spirits were actually drowning in the little cups of water. <laughs> um, so what's been fascinating about the title, it, and I chose the title because I felt like, you know, it signaled as well to, it's it signaled in a very practical way how the women, immigrant women in my family tried to take care of me and then metaphorically, right, signaled to sort of um, a very small gesture that encompasses so much. And what's been great is actually meeting uh, people from whose families are from all over Latin America who have that practice as well and have some variations on it, like they put an egg in the water or they slice lemons and put them into the water. So there's sort of like different variations on the same. Um, I am assuming probably a very indigenous or African in origin practice. Mm. So let's, you know, take experiences like that and apply it to, you know, finally coming out and this coming of age and, and, and recognizing yourself. And, and uh, for a lot of us who grew up uh, in immigrant families, you 
you're so focused on what your parents have to say because you you think that you know they they've guided you here in this country to uh and they know everything right and then you you go off to school you go and experience um different social settings and then you realize that a lot of stuff that they said are either wrong or <laughs> or that's mm-hmm. just not what your experiences are anymore and, and you start to kind of distance yourself from from that very small focused world so so talk to us about coming out and what that experience was like for you yeah you know and my experience might have been very much is in alignment with what you just described might be only a little bit different in, and I talk about this early on in the book in that I was interpreting for my parents from a pretty young age. And so the power dynamics were with, with us were very different um, than if I had not been interpreting for them because as a child I felt a lot of power in some ways because I was, the, I was sort of the public voice for the family. But then at the same time I was just a child, you know. So it kind of um, flipped things around with my parents in the sense that I did not necessarily see them as being all-knowing and guiding me through life, because I was actually guiding them through a lot, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think there was a way in which when it came to sexuality, it was, like, maybe a little bit easier for me to, like, <laughs> throw things out the window um, <laughs> that weren't important to me anymore or weren't useful. And um, and just, like, really early on for me, it, it was... I mean, I was also fortunate I had a really strong queer community in New York City and New Jersey, but it was really... Um, easy for me to embrace my own sexuality, and and so I kind of because I had grown up as such a child interpreter, you know, as I as I narrated in the book, you know, it seemed to me like, oh, I have found the truth, you know, I shall now come back to my mother <laughs> <laughs> and share the wisdom that I have found out in the world because it was so in alignment with, you know, at that point, you know. Um, if we're just going from, like, age of 5 to 25, like, I had spent 20 years, you know, interpreting the world already for her. So to me, it was like, you know, I sit her down, you know, in my bedroom. I'm still living at home at 25, and I um, tell her, you know, that I have not been dating recently, which she's happy about because she felt like she wanted me to, like, magically wait. She wanted me to wait for, like, that magic um this man who I would then marry and go off into the sunset with. And so, so she was happy, actually, that I wasn't dating. But um, but then my lead-up to that was I've been dating women. Um, and, you know, she then proceeds to practically, you know, faint and fall off the bed. <laughs> and she doesn't. She fans herself. And then the sort of main thing that she says is, this doesn't happen in Colombia. And I was like, well, you haven't been in Colombia in, like, 23 years, but it doesn't happen there. I'm like, there's gay people in Colombia. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of gay people and queer people in Colombia. Um, so for me, it was really, you know, I mean, in the moment I had one experience, but now, of course, looking back to me, it was it, fascinating that in that moment where she's introduced um, to a queer, you know, to having a queer daughter, that she kind of like, you know, begins to sort of grab on to her, you know, homeland, right? Like, oh, this must be an American thing <laughs> now, even though she herself has um, never had any interest in going back to her home country, mm-hmm. never had any interest in taking us there, right? Like, it's sort of like, you know, but in this moment of, of um, what, you know, what I can only assume is like shock to her, um, 
she kind of goes for what's familiar to her, you know, and sort of like a kind of like a sort of easy explanation. And, um, and so, yeah, that was, that was the coming out process with, um, mm. with her. And then she went off and told my dad and my dad was like, well, was her ex-boyfriend gay the whole time? Because I had a boyfriend <laughs> I was with for almost five years. It's like, no, there are bisexuals like me. And Yeah. yeah. Well, now let's uh, apply that to your social, you know, world or environments. Um, you know, that was the response from your parents. But what was it like navigating your life as, you know, uh, bisexual, as Latina? Uh, someone who grew up in an in in, in immigrant family, and and I know it's it, you know it's like you've got to read the book, you've got to read the memoir to get all of the experiences. But if you could sum it up for us, uh, at least tease us so we can go get the book, that would be awesome. <laughs> you know, um, for me overall, um, that has like you know being queer has been. Um, you know, a, being a queer Latina has, like, largely been a really positive experience. And I think part of that has been just that I happened to be so close to New York City and that I was involved with feminists so, uh, and feminism. So in terms of, like, my own friends, there was a lot of acceptance, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't a huge um, jump or leap in terms of, like, you know, who my friends were at the time. Um, but, I, but I also think that, there's a way in which, um, you know, I see I see a lot of similarities between the immigrant experience and the queer experience, and and this is what I touch on in the book as well is that, you know, immigrants arrive in this country and you know you have to find your people, you have to find your chosen family, you know, you have to recreate that home here. And I think for me, when I was co- my coming out process, it just felt really similar to what my parents had done. It felt like. I've got to find my people, you know, I've got to find my community. I have to create my, like this idea of having a chosen family totally made sense to me. Um, Not because of the, of the history of of queer or any knowledge of queer history. It made sense to me because it's like, yeah, this is what immigrants do all the time. And so to me, it was, um, you know, it was, I was very intentionally gravitating towards those people and, um, and and creating you know creating that chosen family, and and then with you know I think the more challenging aspect is being bisexual because that um, that gets so it, it becomes it becomes so invisible to people and it, it gets silenced in a lot of ways you know by our culture so there's a lot of um, what I feel like is sort of repeat coming out you know mm-hmm. um, so if you know, if I'm dating someone who people are reading as male, you know, I feel like I have to make a point, you know, of um, of saying that I'm queer. So it's always constantly saying that I'm queer and then being careful with my language, too, because if you're not part of the LGBT community, you're not um, you're not sure what queer means or, or people assume that queer means lesbian um, and they read it only that way. And then, and other people have just recently had a back and forth with someone on social media because she felt like, uh, and this has happened to me in other studies, she's like, that word is offensive, how dare you use it? And I'm like, 
no, we've reclaimed it, really, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I had um, a girlfriend who was a little bit older than me as was um, Puerto Rican, and for her, when she was growing up, I mean, that word was a source of a lot of pain, you know. And so, I, so part of that has also been acknowledging, like, yeah, I know for a lot of people this is still a source of pain today um, for myself. It's, 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 like, it's the word that always feels right to me. <laughs> it feels like the, it feels a lot more accurate than saying bisexual um, because I think it speaks to a lot more than just sexuality. Right, um, right. Yeah. Well, I have one last question for you before we let you go. It's, it's uh, I can't believe half an hour <laughs> went by so quickly. <laughs> it's been so fun talking to you. Um, you know, what do you want people to take out of reading your memoir? I mean, I think it's incredibly important for a lot of us in the LGBTQ community, LGBTQI community, to tell our stories and tell our authentic stories. And I can only imagine, um, you know, so many, uh, the I would say Latinx, uh, LGBTQI mm-hmm. people who want to reach out to someone like you to learn from you. But yeah, what would what do you think? What do you think people should take away from your memoir? You know, I hope that they will take away um, something that will help them. You know, like like I feel like there's so many different aspects that I touch on in, in the book. And so I feel like I want them, you know, I want all of my peeps, you know, my, my chosen family that I don't <laughs> even, haven't even met yet um, to really thrive, you know, and, and to really grow in love. You know, it's like we have so many challenges, as you were mentioning at the beginning of the show, so many challenges that we faced just in this past year um, and so many attacks on our communities, you know, even going forward, you know, legislation and other things. And so I feel like if they can take some something from the book that helps them with loving themselves, with moving forward in their lives and in their communities and building community and building chosen family, I would be, as a writer, so incredibly happy. So I hope that's what they think. Daisy, thank you so much for joining us here this morning and uh, for coming by the Michelle Miao Show. Thank you. Everyone, grab a copy of A Cup of Water Under My Bed. It's worth a read. You can get it if you've got an Amazon account, an iPad, and uh, iTunes, and whatever digital thing. Me, personally, I like the hard copy because I love the smell of fresh pages of a book. So I'm sure you can get it at your local bookstore as well. Look it up. Daisy Hernandez. Don't go away and we continue. We'll, uh, we'll have Mark Clagon, who is a self-identified expert on the, the uh, national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. I actually sh- shouldn't say that he's self-identified. I usually like to go that way to be safe. Uh, we'll find out why exactly he might be considered an expert. So don't go away. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. 
When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. It's Wednesday, hump day, last day of August, August 31st which means tomorrow is the first day of September. And that also means uh, this weekend will be a three-day weekend as Labor Day is Monday. Uh, just so you know, we do plan to take that off So for replaying a show. That is why <laughs> no one's going to be in the studio. And I, I definitely do not want to set the alarm off on a holiday. Uh, so just letting you know. But you can always head to michellemeow.com for all of the content that I produce. We also do a television show. And there's some cool stuff that we do with Commonwealth Club. So I mentioned to you before... Uh, or I should say I mentioned earlier in the show uh, that uh, the whole issue with Colin Kaepernick has me disturbed. And it has me disturbed in a lot of ways. And I think a couple people got it correct, uh, especially people who have been in the media, is that it's really taken away from, you know, the, the what we should really be focused and talking about, which would be the racial issues that we continue to face here in this country. I mean, everybody wants to talk about Colin's action in itself, um, him sitting out on the national anthem, and and we're not focusing on why he's doing it and his explanation. And I think that his why is definitely worth the conversation. Why aren't we talking about that? So I kind of want to you know touch on that. Um, but our next next guest is an a- expert on the national an- anthem as well as the Star Spangled Banner, and I want to ask him a few questions about just kind of the origin of this uh, this historical uh, tradition of ours that signifies American pride and its meaning. Let's start with that and then hopefully end and be able to intellectually discuss uh, Colin's actions and why or why it may not be disrespect or, or, uh, you know, what you, what we're considering controversial. So, I would like to introduce to you our next guest. He's Mark Clegg. He's the Associate Professor of Musicology at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance, and he is the nation's foremost expert on the Star-Spangled Banner. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michelle. Thrilled to be here. 
So, yeah, it was interesting. You know, I was uh, everybody's talking about the Colin Kaepernick thing, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area, him being a San Francisco 49er. And like I said, it, it's controversial. People are really taking this to the far extreme. Um, some people are calling to burn his his jersey. Some people are calling him, uh, you know, uh, unpatriotic and things like that. But let's start with the history of the national anthem. I, I, I had mentioned this before. I was like, you, you watch a bunch of television shows, and I think the average American maybe has, like, fifth grade level uh, in terms of knowing the history of United States history. <laughs> Talk to us about the, the history of the national anthem and its meaning. What does it mean to us as, as Americans? Why do we have it? Well, great questions. And I think you're right. I mean, we know very little about the Star Spangled Banner other than sort of what we can extrapolate from the lyrics themselves. It's like dawn, and there's this fort, and there's bombs bursting, and I guess we win, and, and we're free and brave. So it's, um, it is a, you know, sort of part of the power of the song that it's so deeply ingrained, I think, into our experience of being Americans, largely from sporting events, you know, hearing the anthem at the beginning of basically every game. It used to be just professional, but now, like, you know, with my kids in school, and even, you know, you go out for a, a the local 5K fundraiser, and they play the Star Spangled Banner before you start. So it's basically everywhere. And because of that, it, it, I think it burrows really deep into our psyche as citizens of the United States. And, you know, for that reason, it's so much a part of our life that I don't think we question it or we don't really ask about it, like where did it come from or who is this Francis Scott Key guy. And so to that extent, I, I really appreciate that Colin Kaepernick has brought attention to the anthem. And I think it's a long tradition, actually, that the anthem is not something that's so comfortable, something that makes us think, rather than just something that seems to be natural and true and, and um, patriotic. So when Francis Kaki wrote it, so he is a, a lawyer and an amateur poet and educated guy in living in the District of Columbia. So I sort of think of him as one of the very first Americans in the sense that he's not a resident of a state. He's really a resident of a district. He's a lawyer. He's the district attorney for um, Washington, D.C. He's arguing cases before the Supreme Court. He's a big, good friend of Andrew, President Andrew Jackson. And so he's, he's an operator. He's not so much a um, political candidate. He doesn't run for office, but he's a, a professional lawyer working in town. And as part of that legal business, he get a, gets asked to intervene in a prisoner of war case um, by the U.S. government. And so he's actually sent to meet the British fleet um, just be between the battle for Washington, which went very badly for the U.S. The British come in and burn the federal buildings to the ground. And then the battle of Baltimore, which uh, sort of against all odds, America wins. So he is meeting with the brass of the British command um, just in the days before the battle for Baltimore. And he overhears or sees enough stuff that he would have valuable intelligence if he were able to go back to the Americans and sort of tell them what he knows. And so the British, you know, say, you're going to have to wait until we finish this battle. And by the way, it won't take long. You know, we beat Washington in a couple hours. Well, Baltimore might last a few more, but mm -hmm. we're going to be dining, having dinner there tonight. So it won't inconvenience you much. Just stay on your own ship and, and wait behind us while we get this, this job done. And what the British expected to be a very quick battle, ends up being a 25-hour bombardment, and they eventually are repulsed and, and give up. 
and leave. And so that's the rockets, red glare, and the bombs bursting in air, and all these bombs that the British fleet, which is the most powerful navy in the world at this point, is sending towards Fort McHenry, which is basically sitting ducks because their guns aren't as good as the British guns, and so they're not even in British ships aren't even in range. We can't even really fight back. We just sort of have to wait it out. And anyway. The next morning comes, and Key looks out, um, probably through a telescope. He was probably a lot further away than, than most of the popular depictions of this moment. And he sees the American flag. He sees the Star Spangled Banner still waving. And that moment of pride um, leads to this patriotic effusion that creates the lyric to a well-known melody that had been used for all sorts of patriotic tunes, mm-hmm. including other ones by Key. And so he writes a new set of words for this well-known tune. And it's really just sort of a crazy historical accident that this one tune ends up, you know, surviving 200 years and is still our national anthem today. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that the national anthem is so important in uh, American sports? Um, Well, the the connection to sports, I think, has lots of dimensions, Um, sort of a business angle, sort of a ritual angle, um, and I think something that really speaks to the ethos of competition. So, um, the history of the anthem in sports actually goes to 1862. That's the first time we have evidence of uh, live musicians playing the Star Spangled Banner at a baseball game, in this case, in Brooklyn, New York. And, uh, you know, they basically at this time, really up until the 1930s, if you want to have music at a sporting event, you have to hire musicians to do it live, whether it's on an organ or, in this case, a, a brass band, because we don't have loudspeakers. We have recording we don't have loudspeakers that can broadcast it to a whole stadium. So it's not until sort of the advent of sound films, like the talkies and movies, that we really develop speaker technology that can be used in stadiums. So that's one angle. And I think, you know, part of it is just a sort of a call to attention. We we have this musical moment where we all sing together, and it says to everybody, the game's about to start, you know, join together in this unity to, to pay attention to the game. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think there's an aspect of it that's sort of, you know, creates a sense of community around the stadium, especially, you know, in some ways a sporting event is kind of ritualized warfare between two teams. I mean, especially like football or hockey or the games where there's actually, you know, huge pads and these big guys going after each other. So there's kind of gladiatorial combat. And in a way, the, the anthem emphasizes that everybody's together as one nation right before they start screaming and yelling at each other <laughs> over whose, whose team is the best. Um, but I do think there is a sense that it really does create community. I mean, we have this huge country, and one of the important things about any nation is that there's a feeling of community, a feeling that, you know, paying your taxes contributes to the greater good or following the law contributes to the greater good. And in, in Key's day, the people in your community were all people you knew, people you shook hands with. Today, um, we have this huge nation the vast majority of Americans who are near your fellow countrymen, you'll never meet. You'll never shake their hands. You'll never say hi to them. And so to create the sense of community across boundaries of, you know, sort of intractable space, and space that goes beyond the experience of the individual, you need patriotic symbols that provide a sense of unity. And the flag, the song, you know, all sorts of aspects of American life create that sense of unity. And so the cool thing, I think, about singing the anthem is that it really brings people together in this performance that has to be done live, that has to be brought anew, to, you know, sort of life anew with a flag. You can look at a flag. With an anthem, you have to sing the anthem. You have to experience the anthem. You have to pay attention to the anthem as a community. Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways it's our most powerful patriotic sort of ritual of community. 
So let's touch on that. It's a, it's a ritual. And so when you have an, an athlete like Colin Kaepernick, uh, you know, sit out the national anthem, is I, I don't know if you've taken a formal position, but what are your thoughts? Is it disrespectful to the service members who keep the country protected and free? Um, is it disrespect to our country and its history? Uh, or is it his right and, and a good use of his platform to bring attention to the racial issues that we continue to face in this country? Right. Well, as a historian, I think I'm all for things that make us think more deeply about our world. And, you know, I think one of the dangers of the anthem is that we sing it so much that we stop think- thinking about it. It just becomes a kind of obligatory and sort of mindless thing rather than something that people feel real passionate about. So for me, the sort of exceptional moments in the history of the anthem, whether that be, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock playing it on electric guitar, or even Kaepernick refusing to stand, are sort of moments where we have to pay attention, where we have to think, hey, what's going on here, and um, think a little bit more deeply about the anthem. So I'm, I'm all in favor of that. I can certainly say that people would be offended, but it's, it's that offense, I think, that just prompts us to ask questions. For me, um, these, you know, that knowing more about the history of the anthem really gives us an opportunity to embrace our history. Today, we really see the anthem as something that's sort of sacred, that's immutable, it's sort of always been there. I mean, for almost all of us alive today, the anthem became the official anthem of the United States in 1931. So for almost everybody alive today, certainly me, this has always been our national anthem. But if you, you know, were around 100 years ago, it wasn't our anthem. And mm-hmm. what is what does that mean, and what, where did it come from? And you know, one of the fascinating things I've learned as a historian is that the anthem has been changing over time. It, um, even the words that we think are part of it change. Yeah. But certainly the musical style has changed a lot. And so this thing that people say, oh, well, that's not the traditional version. Um, in tr- point of historical fact, there is no traditional version. We don't sing it today the way Francis Scott Key sang it. And so you know, it's always a reflection of our current life. It's kind of this, it's a symbol, but it's also sort of a mirror of who we are. Mm-hmm. So I think, for me, um, moments like Kaepernick has created, um, you know, bring the power of history to the fore. Mm-hmm. Now, there was another incident, um, and you know, the the race issue here in America has just. I mean, it's always been there, but with the with advanced technology, with social media, it feels like more and more people are talking about it. There's more attention, especially surrounding pr- police brutality and violence um, that impacts the black community. And so there was a conversation at some point in which some people felt like they wanted to take down Confederate flags that are flying in southern states. And then some people see that as, you know, trying to rewrite history or, or erase history even as a historian. I, I kind of, yeah, I was wanted to see what your opinion was because um, I kind of see this national anthem thing and sit, sitting it out or, or not uh, participating when it's been a ritual for so long. Uh, kind of falls in the same thing, kind of almost. You know, you want to you want to take the flag that's been there for so long. It means something to our history. We can't erase that. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Is this similar? Um, there's certainly connections. I guess what I would say, you know, the, the big controversy is around the language of the third verse, and that's the specifically the words "hiring" and "slave" um, that come up. And what happens in the you know, middle two verses of the f- four original ones that he wrote, 
And by the way, there's been lots of extra verses added to the anthem over history. There's, you know, there's, we only really sing the one. Um, and during World War One, the third verse that we're talking about the problems in wasn't even really a part of the national anthem, because it, not because it mocks or identifies slavery, but because it mocks the British. And we were, you know, allies with the British, and so in all sort of official communications, that third verse disappeared for many years, and really sort of come back, I think, because of the internet, because people can look at the complete text. But what happens in those middle verses is the key is really vilifying the enemy, the British enemy. And the hirelings are the British soldiers. They're the mercenaries. They're paid professionals. So he is is really attacking them. And the British also had a strategy of accepting, and this even started before the War of 1812, of accepting escaped American slaves to augment their own fighting forces. And it was called the Colonial Marines. And so the Colonial Marines were promised their freedom if they would fight on the British side as opposed to their former masters on the American side. And sort of fortunately, Britain actually honored that commitment. So the, these um, servicemen and their families, in many cases, were actually relocated later on to Trinidad or Halifax and, and were indeed given their freedom. But one of the things I think that at least the hubbub around Kaepernick has left out is that there were African-Americans fighting on the American side as well, escaped slaves as well as slaves and free blacks, and were defending Baltimore, and that actually were in Fort McHenry at the time. So there's um, a guy named William Williams who um, was actually killed by a British bomb as an escaped slave. And there's another guy named Charles Ball who fought heroically on the flotilla that was perfecting, protecting the fort and actually helped repulse a uh, attack of soldiers sort of sneaking up to the fort that really saved the city and saved the battle. And so when Key was writing in praise of the defenders of Fort McHenry, mm -hmm. there were whites and blacks among those defenders. So it's Slaves are mentioned in a disparaging way in the third verse because they're fighting on the enemy side, but they're not identified on the American side, although they were there. So if, to the extent that Key was honoring all of America's soldiers, he was honoring um, blacks as well as whites. So I don't think there's something inherently racist, at least about that song. It comes out of a racist time, a time when slavery was illegal, and the stain of that legacy is something we're still dealing with. And I think Kaepernick really points out that, you know, not everyone feels that the land of the free is, is their land of the free, um, who's here right now. And that's a problem we need to deal with mm -hmm. and address in the Black Lives Matter movement and other, you know, things in this current election cycle. I mean, just, there's a lot of talk and discussion. And I think what that really needs to do is lead to some kind of some action to really recognize that racism is, is a continuing legacy in the United States that has to be addressed and that just feeling sort of comfortable about the anthem, like everything's okay, mm -hmm. um, is kind of illusion. There are people in our country who don't feel that this anthem really represents them. They don't feel this country is really free for them. Right. And that's right. something we have to really grapple with as a, as a nation. And so, at least for me, I believe that the Star Spangled Banner as an anthem is for everybody, and that he thought it was for everybody. Um, the resonance in the text right now that's causing a stir is a good one if we can sort of grapple with that history and sort of realize that, you know, the election of Barack Obama didn't eliminate racism in the United States, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, that this is a long time thing and, and something that we have to live with that history. Um, you know, if at some point people decide to change the Star Spangled Banner or get a new anthem, I would find that disappointing. But I think it's 
you know, we're always going to be developing as a country, you know, trying to achieve a more perfect union. And, and if the, the country will, you know, the, the people, we the people sort of decide what our anthem is and how it should be realized. And if that starts to shift, that'll reflect a new reality in a way that, you know, this gay marriage is a new reality. So I think the number of people who are in the we the people phrase has really been expanding, but it's, you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act didn't fix the legacy right. of slavery. Um, right. So to the extent that Kaepernick and the song helps us grapple with that, helps us, you know, put a mirror to ourselves and figure out who we are today, um, I think it's a positive thing and that it's a way to use the song as a, as a tool. Mm-hmm. My last question for you, Mark, and thank you so much for being here with us. It's been a fascinating and educational um, conversation about the national anthem. And uh, you make a great point that it came out of a racist time. It came out of a time in which... Um, you know, all of the the progress in terms of equal rights, uh, it's not what it is today. And so what do you think? I mean, do you think that we could potentially alter, the, you know, the, the song uh, to catch up with the times? Or do we not need to? And we, we can all agree that, uh, you know, what you said, that Francis Scott Key really was talking about, you know, we the people, the Americans. Well... On one hand, I do think that America's history is a history of kind of, you know, moral contradictions. And, you know, when he talks, one of the things I think is interesting, the fourth verse has the word freemen, you know, when freemen shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. And the word freeman for Francis Scott Key was a legal term. I mean, he argued cases, um, actually, you know, suing for the freedom of over a half dozen slaves that he, you know, worked gratis on those cases some of which he lost, won, some of which he lost. But for him, the term freeman was really a technical term. It was men who were free. And in Washington, D.C., where Francis Scott Key lived, it actually had the largest population of um, free blacks in the United States in 1814 when Key was alive and, and writing the song. So when I, I think when he says freeman in the fourth verse, he men, means all men who are free regardless of race. So I do think if we embrace the song and if we were to keep it, we would have a better understanding of who we were and how we got to be that way. Um, you know, to erase the song and sort of put it in a box and say, this has to disappear, um, would be to silence that history, I think, and, and in some ways to deny who we are and the kind of constant vigilance that we need to make sure that human rights always, you know, sort of trump um, our social blind spots. Um, so, but I can see, you know, if there are people who really feel offended by the song, that the song alienates them, then it's not functioning as something that brings people together, that creates community, and that'll require a change. I think mm -hmm. the hard thing about anthems is you can't really write them. Um, anthems sort of happen. They happen about pivotal moments in our history where an artistic expression captures the feeling of the nation in a way that creates a sense of shared understanding. And so, you know, really rather than, than the government or politicians deciding that this song can no longer be the anthem, what would I think have to happen is that an artist would need to, a musician or really anybody, would have to create a song that spoke to this moment in our history in such a powerful way that it brought us together. And if that were to happen, that song could, you know, sort of gain sort of traction and, and weight as a symbol mm -hmm. that would outweigh the Star Spangled Banner. 
but to to tell people sort of by legal means or you know an act of Congress that this was no longer the anthem, I don't think it would work. It didn't work to make it the anthem. I mean, the anthem you know is named officially by Congress in 1931, but the Star Spangled Banner had been functioning as the U.S. anthem really since the Civil War forward. I mean, Congress was just sort of ceremonially labeling something that had been true for many years. Right. And uh, so it's not really the Congress that makes the anthem. It's we the people that make the anthem. So I think if, if we were to decide, and it would be a kind of collective cultural consciousness that would decide because a song made the difference, um, I think the anthem could change. But the challenge would be that we have 200 years of history with the Star Spangled Banner. It has a lot of symbolic weight for many, many people right now. And to overcome that um, would be a huge artistic challenge. There have been lots of times in history where people said, oh, we should do this or do something different. And they, they've had contests and tried to commission a new anthem. And it has never produced anything that anybody even remembers the name of because mm-hmm. it's, it's really a, a historical moment. And Francis Scott Key didn't, he didn't write a national anthem. He wrote a song that captured that moment. And that moment transcended its, its sort of peculiarities of history and became this national symbol. So I think that's what we'd really need is we need Beyonce or somebody <laughs> to come up with a song that, that just riveted the nation and that might um, sort of be the dawn of a new anthem era. Sure. Or spark change. I mean, I think, that, I think yeah. that, you know, again, that's what you went through. At least Colin Kaepernick is, uh, that's what he's doing, is driving us to, or forcing, or in some way um, allowing for us to have this conversation. Uh, so, Mark, I, I thank you so much for being here with us. And I'm so grateful that there's a Mark Clegg out there who's an expert on the Star Spangled Banner. Well, it's, it is an obsession, but I do love the song, and I do love the way it helps us think about who we are. Absolutely. Mark, thanks again. Thanks, John. By the way, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, kind of finding out why Mark is an expert on the Star Spangled Banner. I should note that he is the founding board chair of the Star Spangled um, Music Foundation and also editor and producer of the Star Spangled Songbook. And you should contact him if you've got questions about the national anthem. And I'm so thankful for historians. I hated history, you know, in middle school and in high school even. But it's so important, especially, uh, you know, when we're talking about today's issues, as they say, history repeats itself. Don't go away. I'm going to take a quick break. But when I come back, I'm going to wrap up the show and give you some final thoughts. So stay with me. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. 
learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, August 31st. I thought that was a great show. I'm really, really happy to be in the studio. Anytime I'm sad, being in the studio makes me extremely happy, and I'm so grateful for you for tuning in. You can head to michellemeow.com for all of my content. I'm here Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Don't forget, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here Friday. Uh, at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And uh, don't forget, the only way we can move forward is to actually move forward. Until then, my friends, we'll talk to you next time.